Greetings to all of you who are scattered uh, here throughout our worship center in person and to the you who are scattered in, in your homes or cars or wherever you may be. Uh, we gather as the people of God in unusual ways in unusual times. Last week, we, we recognized that, as the Apostle Peter teaches us, part of, of the identity that we have as the people of God, as the Church of Jesus Christ, is described by terms like exiles, uh, sojourners, or pilgrims. People who are not quite fully at home in, in the place where we are, here in this age on planet Earth, uh, people whose citizenship ultimately is in heaven and we are kind of an embassy of heaven where God uh, has us here on Earth in this age as we await the return of our Lord and, and the fullness of our salvation. So we're, we're exiles, pilgrims. That's, that's one way that we need to think about ourselves. But another way that we need to think about ourselves, another piece of our identity is, is found in the word saints. Now, that term is not used in the same way by everybody, right? I, I still remember way back when, in, in my first pastoral ministry back in, in my home state of Indiana, uh, I, was, I was teaching a, um, an adult Bible class, and, and we were working through a book called Body and Life by Ray Stedman. And um, one of the chapters focused on Ephesians chapter 4, in particular verses 11 and 12. And, and what, what Paul says there about the role of uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers in the church... And, and a part of what he says there is their task is equipping the, the saints for the work of ministry. So the chapter was entitled Shaping Up the Saints. One woman who was in the class was new to our church, and she had a different kind of church background. And so she said to me, Shaping up the saints? Really? Like St. Augustine and St. Anselm and, and St. John Paul II now. Uh, that's an anachronism. This is way back when. So she, but she had in mind saints as, as those who are declared to be in a special holy category in heaven at some point after they've died. So the idea of shaping up the saints was incomprehensible, but... She, she came to see, okay, that's not the only way to think about the term saints or holy ones. We sometimes uh, fall into a use of the term to describe people in this life who are uh, especially good people, right? So we, let's say we, we think about someone who lives with a particularly difficult spouse, Say it's a woman whose husband is a first-class jerk, but somehow she patiently perseveres. We say, she's a saint. 
meaning she's, she's especially good. But the Bible uses the term in, in, a, in a bit of a different way. All of us who belong to Christ by faith are called saints. Now, we're called holy ones now. So Paul can, can begin an epistle and say, I'm writing to the, the saints, the holy ones at Corinth, or, or the, the holy ones at Colossae, or the holy ones in the church at Philippi. There it's talking about all of us who belong to Christ. And, and yet, sometimes it talks about holiness in terms of something that is ongoing and we are growing, and we're going to be looking at that today. And then, on at least one occasion, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul looks ahead to the end of this age, the fullness of our salvation, and describes it as being sanctified, made holy completely in body, soul, and spirit. So holiness is both a status that we have as children of God through faith in Christ. It describes a way of life that we're called to, to to live in, the, in a way that matches what we are in our status. And sometimes it's the goal. It's that perfection which lies ahead. The word has several meanings. So in, in this next section in First Peter that we come to today, beginning at ver- chapter 1, verse 13, Peter talks a bit about what all this means in real life. as as a way of reinforcing the fact that our identity as God's people is to be the holy ones. And his point will be, God calls you and me to live in a way that is holy and distinct, set apart for God, even as God himself is perfectly holy. And so we begin with the basic command, verse 13 down through verse 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so so Paul says, to use the the words my mother used to use with me when I was a boy, put your thinking cap on. Think about this. The the King James Version has a, a very literal translation of the Greek metaphor, gird up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins goes, refers back to those days when men typically wore an outer garment that was long, and if they were going to run or walk fast, they had to tie it up at the waist. So uh, some paraphrase translations say things like, uh, roll up your sleeves, think right. So, so he says, let's think hard about who we are and who we ought to be as God's people But what I find really striking is when he's talking about the way we ought to live in the present, he says, 
Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of Christ. He's already talked in the the earlier part of this chapter about the fact that we, we are looking forward to that salvation which is reserved for us in the end. Evangelical Christians often talk about salvation simply as something that has happened now in the present, but that's only one way the Bible talks about it. Our salvation is not yet complete. It will be complete when Christ comes. And so Peter says, I want you to think about that, that final manifestation of God's saving grace, which will make us what we ought to be fully in the end. So he's saying, focus on what lies ahead, what you're going to be as a way of shaping what you are now in the present. It's the same kind of thing that the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 when he, when he says, we, we are now the children of God. We really are. That's what we are in the present. What we will be, he says, has not been made fully known. But what we do know is this, that when he appears, when he comes again, we will be like him, conformed to the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And then he says, everyone who has this hope in him, this hope of what we will be, purifies himself now. In other words, both John and Peter are saying, the, the way we are as humans is we, we choose to live in the present like what we envision ourselves becoming. I, I remember that especially uh, from my youth. Well, one of the things I, I didn't tell, I haven't told you yet about myself, which I'm about to tell you, is that I, w- I was named after Stan the Man Musial, the Hall of Fame outfielder of the St. Louis Cardinals. My dad was a diehard Cardinals fan, and, and so he named me after Stan Musial. Some of you don't know who Stan Musial was. Others of you don't care. Um, there's still time to repent, by the way, of that, of that attitude. But I was, I was named after the famous Hall of Fame baseball player. And so I envisioned myself becoming a major league baseball player. And so as a boy, I, I devoted whatever time I had to developing my baseball skills. And so a very, at a very early age, my dad and I were playing catch in the yard, and one day he threw the ball and I missed it, and it hit my glasses and knocked out a lens. And, and so we just sat down and popped the lens back into place, cleaned it off a bit, and went back to throwing the ball. Who cared that it might knock out a piece of my glasses? There were a few other times when I broke my glasses, and it was not as happy an occasion. But anyway, I, act, I was acting out what I saw myself becoming. Now, unfortunately, by the time I got to my early teens, I realized I couldn't seem to throw a curve. I couldn't seem to hit a curve. So my dream of becoming a Major League Baseball player kind of disappeared. 
But as long as I saw myself becoming that, I acted like that. And so Peter says part of it is looking forward and recognizing what we're going to to be and living like that. But then he also makes the point in verse 14 that as obedient children of God, we have to recognize that we leave the past behind. We leave behind what he calls the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance. We leave behind the lifestyle of the world. And so he says, positively, the call is from God, you be holy even as I am holy. To be, to be holy means to be set apart in a, in a special relation to God. It means to be distinct, uh, to, be, to be in a different category, to be not, not common, not like other persons or other things. It really does mean a willingness to be distinct, even as God is distinct and perfect and in a category all on his own. He says to us, I want you, if you're children of God, to imitate your father. It's, it's the same kind of idea that we have back in, in the words Jesus uttered in Matthew 5 when he, when he says to those who, who want to be his disciples, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, salt and light both work only because they are distinct from the environment in which they're placed. Now, that's true of both the metaphors there, but but he emphasizes it in the metaphor of salt of the earth. So when he talks about being salt of the earth, that that naturally um, causes teachers of the Bible to start theorizing about, well, what do we use salt for? And we think about all the different things that we might use it for. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, If the salt loses its saltiness, if it it gets encrusted with impurities and loses its salty edge, it becomes useless. Salt is only useful because it's different from the environment into which we put it. So Jesus is saying, you're only useful as my disciples in this world if you're willing to be different from the world around you. And over time, I find myself coming to the conclusion that I have to remind myself of that occasionally. My my early Christian nurture was in, in middle America in a in a Baptist environment that was self-described fundamentalist. Fundamentalist wasn't just a, a negative term that other people used to describe us. It was a term we proudly used to describe ourselves. We weren't even, we weren't, 
I, I don't know that I ever heard the term evangelical used to describe us. We were fundamentalists. We knew that there were probably other groups of churches that had parts of the truth, but we had all of it. And, and, a, and a part of that was, so we were the tightest notch on the Bible belt. And, and a part of that was we, we felt perfectly free to make all kinds of decisions for everybody. So no good Christian would do a, B, or C. I, I hate to start naming the items, but sometimes, you know, mockingly described as we don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with girls who do. Um, but it went way beyond that. Now, at, at some point, at some point, both my wife and I, who grew up there in the same church, both, bo- both of us, I think we're, by God's grace, moved a bit beyond that. And, and so we recognize there's, there's, there's a bit more liberty for Christians to make different choices than our church seemed to think. But the peril of that is we, we disavow that legalism, which was wrong, I'm convinced. And, and we end up willing to simply fit into the pattern of things and be like the world around us. And so I need to remind myself, I I do need to be willing to be different. God calls us to imitate him, the Holy One, and to live in a holy way. Now, there are lots of good reasons, lots of incentives to do that. And Peter goes on to describe those in the verses that follow. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, notice that term again, here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So in, in, this, in this part of, of what Peter says, he he really states three incentives to live in a holy way. The first is the fear of God. In verse 17, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. That's that, so that's why I, I chose for the secondary scripture reading today, Proverbs chapter 1 where the Proverbs tell us 
that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of, of the, the, the righteous, the just, the fear of the holy kind of life. Now, that, that may sound strange to us somehow, but notice Peter says, you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. He is both father and judge. So we who believe in Christ, who've been declared righteous, we will be judged? Yes, we will. We'll see later when we get to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, uh, in verse 17, he says that judgment that's coming will begin with the household of God. Not in the sense that Christ the judge is going to bring up our sins and declare us guilty, but Christ the righteous judge is going to declare the true and right verdict on all of human history, including all that we have done. And so, as the Proverbs remind us, as Peter reminds us, although there is a a wrong kind of fear that believers ought not have, because we have been declared to be God's children, accepted by him, there is also a right kind of fear. There's a a difference between the fear that a a child feels when, when they see an intruder with a gun and the fear a child feels when, when they think about their father or their mother whom they recognize as authority and yet they know they are loved. And so there is a, a kind of reverent awe, there is a kind of fear that we rightly experience that we feel when we think about our relation to God. He really is the judge of all humankind, and he is going to express a true judgment about what we do, and that should be an incentive to live in a holy way. But then then he moves to saying redemption by Christ is an incentive to holiness in verses 18 to 21 when he reminds us that that Christ redeemed us, he ransomed us. The terminology is about liberation from slavery and, and servitude. He ransomed us not, not by paying silver or gold, as someone might have done in the Roman world, but he ransomed us at the cost of his own blood. By the way, I I can't imagine a better linkage between worship songs and and the teaching of the word than what I've experienced today already. So we've sung about this, and we're going to remember and proclaim this in the act of eating and drinking at the end of the service today. Our our slavery was both to guilt and to the tyranny of of indwelling sin, our sinful nature. And, And Peter says, Christ has redeemed us not only from our guilt, because the Lamb of God atoned for our sin, 
but he's redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors. In other words, the, the redemption that Christ has wrought for us delivers us not only from condemnation, but delivers us also from the tyranny of indwelling sin so that we, we become new persons and able to live now in a holy and distinct and godly way. He makes the point that all this happened at incredible cost. The precious, the awesomely valuable blood, the sacrificial death of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son. He bought us at great price, which means we belong to him. And therefore, it matters not what the standards of the wider world are that we're called to imitate. We don't belong to the world. We belong to Christ, who bought us at the cost of his own blood. And then from verse 22 down to verse 25, Peter makes the point that we are spiritually reborn. We, we We have been born again, verse 23, by the word of God, by the gospel that we heard and believed. And the gospel, the good news, offers us both forgiveness and the gift of God's spirit to make us new persons. So here, the, the incentive is not so much a, a stimulus that says you ought to live a holy life as it is a stimulus that says you actually are able to live a holy life because whatever else you, as believers in Christ, may be, you are not what you once were. So here in, in this text, Peter is saying, We are stimulated to live a holy life not only by recognizing what we're going to be, but recognizing what we left behind, what we are, what we no longer are. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul teaches back in Romans 6 when he says, if we've been justified by faith, does that mean we, we go on living in sin so that grace may really abound? And he says... Are you kidding? That's a free translation of the Greek original, but, but, th- but that's, his po- that's the point. By the way, the King James Version renders it God forbid, but the name of God does not appear in the text. Um, so that's, that's a case of, no, I, I was going to make a joke about the King James Version, which is not a good thing to do. Um, but the, 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 the point of the phrase is, Perish the thought. Of course not. And Paul goes on to make the point, you can't go on living the way you once did and claim to be really children of God because you aren't the people you once were. In Christ, you have died to sin and spiritually been raised to a new life. So we're called to be holy, and because God has given us new birth through the gospel, we are actually can think of that as a real possibility. We're able. But 
it, it ra- does raise the question, what exactly does holiness look like? Now, we've already read verse 22, which talks about we've obeyed the truth, so we have sincere love for e- each other. And we're exhorted, therefore, to love one another deeply from the heart. And then again, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. In other words, genuine holiness means a genuine love for one another. There are, there are lots of strange ideas about what holiness means. Holiness or separation from worldliness. I, I've experienced a whole lot of them over my lifetime. One, one of the extreme forms would be the patterns of the Amish. Um, so old order Mennonites we, we recognize who choose to live in a simple way, distinct from the wider society. Uh, thus, it's so fascinating. At the Home Depot in the north end of Waterloo, you have parking for cars and you have parking for horse and buggy. The Amish are one step beyond that, actually. Um, how many of you have been to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania? Okay, a few of us have. The, the Amish are very distinct, but they know how to, they know how to commercialize it and, uh, and, and actually make some income off being d- that distinct. Now, that's an extreme. Um, I remember a time back in, this is my first pastoral ministry. It was uh, fashionable at the time for men to wear dark dress shirts. And so I, I had some dark dress shirts. In our denominational magazine, someone wrote a little article arguing that Christian men should separate from worldliness, especially pastors, and they should, they should always wear white dress shirts. The argument was something like, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone, and that can only happen if light reflects off white. And you're about as impressed with the argument as I was. I've convoluted, off target. And I'm thinking, really? I mean, worldliness is all about what color dress shirt I wear? Um, think about that one. If, if that's what holiness means, means being distinct in those kinds of arbitrary ways, it means the world controls us. Because all the world has to do is change the fashionable color and to be distinct, we have to go out and buy a new wardrobe. The world would be controlling us. That's arbitrary. I, I still remember, too, my first semester as a student at Dallas Seminary, the faculty brought down a rule which said students may not have a beard. And looking back on it now, I, I think, why did we not revolt? But we didn't. And you think, beard, I mean... Part of me wants to say, have you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 11? Does not nature itself teach you? Uh, or haven't you read Spurgeon who said it's a very godly and manly thing to do? And on and on. But you have to remember, it was 1968. And in the USA at the time, 
Wearing a beard was kind of a sign of the counterculture, hippie culture. And the president said, it is not a moral issue, but I have to raise money to keep the school going. That's what he told the faculty. He didn't actually tell the students all that. But that's what he told the faculty. Really? Holiness is not about arbitrary things like beards or color of your shirt or whether you drive a Mercedes or a horse and buggy. Peter says it's about love. Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your being. Similar to it is love your neighbor as yourself and the whole moral law of God hangs on those commands. Jesus also said to the apostles at that final meal, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then four chapters later, we have his prayer that night, which he prayed that the Father would make those who believe in him one so the world might see and believe that he had been sent as the Savior of the world. In other words, a a loving and thus united church shows the world that the gospel they reject creates the kind of community that they desire. God calls us to be holy and distinct by living out a holy, fervent, sacrificial kind of love for others. And then at the the end of our text, Peter says, you began all this when you became believers by believing the word of God and the gospel, and you will grow in holiness as you crave the, the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word. We believed the word of the gospel and became the children of God by faith. We, we grow as God's children as we read his word, as we hear his word, as we meditate on it and absorb it, and it increasingly shapes our life. I think, when I think about holiness, the holiness of God, the passage that comes to mind is Isaiah chapter 6. Prophet Isaiah recalls, he had a vision of the Lord God seated on a throne and the angelic throngs declaring who he he is. And, And the seraphim declare, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And and Isaiah says, in my vision, the posts and everything shook at that declaration of the holiness of God. And Isaiah says, "My, my response was to say, woe, woe to me. I'm in despair. When I confront the holiness of God and think about who I am, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. Woe, despair. 
And maybe you feel that when you try to think hard, as Peter exhorts us, about the holiness of God. But that wasn't the end of Isaiah's experience. One of the seraphim took a coal from the altar of the temple, came and touched Isaiah's lip with it, and declared, you're forgiven. And beyond that, you are called to be a prophet, speaking the word of the Lord to this people. And so that was Isaiah's reminder that God, who is perfectly holy in his majesty and purity, is perfectly gracious as well. And so by grace, we hear the good news, the gospel, but through faith we are forgiven and and we receive God's spirit to make us new persons. And we know that by the grace of God, we can share Peter's confidence that by grace, we can be holy as God is holy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is good news indeed to hear that that you have redeemed us through the vicarious death of your son. The Spirit of God has drawn us to trust in him. We are forgiven and we are made new. And so indeed, by the work of your Spirit and your word, make that a reality in us today, that your glory might fill all the earth. Amen.